Welcome to the podcast once again, and a warm welcome to an old friend. Gary Saul Morrison is a professor of, it's a long title, Gary. I know it's Slavic literature. How do we say it properly? Slavic languages and literatures. At Northwestern University. Um, and has a side interest, which has produced two books. They're scholarly also, but not like the standard but deep literary criticism he does, and literary analysis, which is focused essentially upon uh, classic Russian literature. But otherwise, he focuses upon life and about the wisdom that we keep compiling for ourselves and reassuring and flattering ourselves with as we quote this or that maxim, this or that apothegm, this or that proverb. I offer you, Gary, two proverbs, both of which have profound truth, and they both are about life. They both start with the word life, and they're both anonymous as far as I know. And uh, the first one is, life is so full of a number of things, I'm sure we should all be as happy as kings. And the second, which is of the bum bumper sticker variety, I've seen it on bumper stickers in recent years, is, quote, life is a bitch and then you die. Which of those is true? Well, they both are a little pretentious. Certainly the second one is, you know, it represents itself as a profundity when actually it's just a complaint. It's doesn't, you know, it doesn't say anything that well, we didn't know It's quite before. depressed. Yeah, it says, I'm depressed and I don't like things. Aren't I clever to put it this way? Yeah. That's sort of what it says. What about the first one? Life is so full of a number of things. I'm sure we should all be as happy as kings. Well, it has... Th the ring of something, you know, quite old from the days when there were kings around. Um, so it comes with an aura of proverbiality, whether or not it is a proverb, yeah. uh, of, of timeless wisdom. It's a little um, sappy. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of is in profundity about as profound as the other, but without the pretension. Well, now I put to you the further challenge. Give me a quotation, a well-known one about life, which comes closer to saying what you think should be said. Well, there's one by Pascal. Um, the infinity of time and space horrifies me. Uh, the sense of how small we are in relation to anything yeah. larger we can think of, the time, space, culture, the little bit of time we are, the bubble we are, which then bursts, um, suggests that, a kind of both a modesty and a need for some meaning, this is certainly what it suggested to Pascal, that you can't find by your own efforts or by combined human efforts. Though Pascal was a Christian and so took that seriously at the same time he was agnostic or doubtful and cynical. There's a mixture of confusion or at least of ambivalence about the assurances that religion offers. And that perhaps that's best conveyed in the so-called Pascal's wager. Yes, I mean, Pascal is actually, uh, you know, before he became religious, he was very well known as a mathematician. Sure. Right? Uh, basically the inventor of probability theory. He'd done some important experiments in physics. And then he experienced what he called his night of fire, where the sense of existential dread of death, um, the need for a God who was not 
rationalistic. You know, his famous line is, um, not the God of the philosophers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which he writes down in his mm-hmm. Night of Fire, led him to try to acquire a faith. And his work expresses, you know, his maxims, which he then were supposed to be part of a larger book, which he never wrote, are about the struggle to achieve faith, uh, the faith in trying to find faith. And that's kind of what made him so, you know, appealing, let's say, to Dostoevsky. He does coin the phrase, does he not, the leap of faith. God, does he coin it? He certainly uses it. He uses it. it, He says that the only ultimate way to... uh, to God or to whatever is out there that confuses us, and but it somehow deepens us if we can touch it. The only way is to make the leap of faith. Yeah, and, and the wager that, that you mentioned, you know, it's often misinterpreted, but the way he phrases it is um, in terms of probability theory, of which he was an expert, mm-hmm. uh, and in gambling, which is what sort of led him to probability theory, how, how to assign... Uh, how to divide the pot in a game that is not yet over? I mean, how would you divide the winnings? Mm-hmm. And he came up with the notion of what we now call uh, expected return. So let's say if um, you take the odds that you will win at any given time multiplied by the return if you do. So if the odd is, let's say, two to one against you, but the returns is five to one against you, you place the bet, because it's clearly greater than than one. Uh, he tried the same argument with religion, you see. So let's suppose that... Where the basic question is, is, is God there? Well, that's his question, and how... Yeah. Let's bet on it, he says. Uh, if, let's say, the odds against God's existence are a thousand to one, but the reward, if he does exist, or punishment are infinite. Therefore, no matter how unlikely you think it is that God exists, it pays to bet on it, that is, organize your life that way, because any infinite quantity overwhelms any finite quantity. Does this also, uh, con- is this also a conjecture about the possibility that, that there really is an afterlife? Yes. No, it, it presumes there's an afterlife. It presumes that if there's God, there's an afterlife. That's if where the reward God, would come yes. from, or the punishment. Uh, and, well, people say, well, that doesn't make sense. After all, you can't make yourself believe just because it would be in your interest to do so, even if you grant that part of the argument. And, but he's thought about that. And he's thought about it as you can't make yourself believe, but you can live the sort of life that will make belief more likely to come mm-hmm. to you. In the same way, for example, that you can... You can't make yourself be hit by lightning, but you can stand out in a field during a thunderstorm. You can Somehow, make it more likely. And, and, uh, and that's uh, how you acquire faith. A writer who comes to my mind uh, is, I wonder what, there's a real connection. He was also a scientist, as uh, was Pascal, uh, but he was a physician. But he's not known as either. He's known as a philosopher uh, and as a psychologist. I'm th- talking about the other James brother. William. William James, yes. And uh, pragmatism, which is in a way his philosophy, or which he elaborated and gave a name, uh, is uh, saying, well, the ultimate veridicality of a proposition is whether it works for you. 
Well, and yes, and he has a wonderful essay sort of putting that to use in terms of religion called The Will to Believe. Yes, exactly. Right? And which, he still, which he does in that whole book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. Which is another, yeah. And The Will to Believe in other essays is, you know, mm-hmm. also various in the theme. It, the analogy he traces is of belief and trust. You can make something true by accepting it as true. If you trust others, if you treat others as trustworthy, they're more likely to trust you. Whereas if you treat them as untrustworthy, you're likely to get that in return. Well, I started so belief with one, will, will work the same way, and you can get create a sense of meaningful life there. I started with two quotations, which are proverbs or maxims or whatever, and both seem to you a little sappy. And then we got to a, a man of greater profundity, namely Blaise Pascal. Um, that happens anytime you start trotting out sort of a stored wisdom in little epigrams, doesn't it? Yes, and you know, it is because you know when something is brief, it can very often be simplistic. It takes a real genius to make something brief and yet condensed. But you went wisdom. after that very genre, if we might may call it that. Um, though there are a number of different subcategories. There are proverbs, there are apothegms. What else is there? Well, there are witticisms. Witticisms. There's the the group that I coined the name. Oscar Wilde on his deathbed, that wallpaper must go or I will. Yeah, of course like. it's a, it's apocryphal, but it doesn't matter for the, you know, for the Yeah. for the for the power of it as a witticism. But th- that was a, that's the last words witticism. Well, yes, and you know, if you think about it, all last words are almost certainly apocryphal. What are you going to do? Ask the person if he really said that? I mean, which, it, which, which Roman emperor uh, who was about to die says Oh, I think I'm becoming a god. That's Claud. It's attributed to Claudius. Is it? I'm becoming a god. You know, the, the Claudius about who you know Robert Graves wrote. To be sure. You know, I Claudius. Um, the ancients loved to write stories about Claudius. Um, uh, Seneca has a story about Claudius um, who dies in this version fart- by farting too hard. Oh my goodness! And he decides to attend his own funeral as a ghost and see everybody so sad that he's gone and he sees them joyously happy and he's truly disgusted um, and because Roman emperors were deified he, he goes up his way to heaven so the gods will deify him but the, the, the poem breaks off here but apparently he's not deified he's turned into a pumpkin and so the poem is called the pumpkinization of Claudius you know, you know that's kind of, this is the same Claudius if you have an emperor who's a fool it invites yeah. witticisms you know I'm trying to remember who was the emperor while Pliny the Younger was essentially administering uh, Palestine uh, and what is now Israel. And uh, Pliny writes, I've got a number of these Christians around, and I don't know what to do with them because they do not worship your, the statue uh, of, of yourself. Uh, and he was still, was it Trajan? No, Trajan. Trajan would be later. It could be, be Tiberius. I'm not sure. Maybe. I'm hearing uh, a classicist now sighing at us in disgust. And at any rate, the uh, uh, the emperor writes back saying, you're doing a pretty good job, kid. I'm obviously freelancing and uh, improvising this. But uh, about those Christians, don't kill them unless they really are offensive and make a lot of public trouble. Uh, they don't have to worship me, but they certainly must continue to show respect for the imperium. Yes. 
Uh, Go slow. Don't kill them all. Yeah. All these comments read ironically if you know, as of course nobody then did, the later history. Because if you know the later history, you can imagine him saying, you know, either they should have killed them all off because however unlikely it may seem, they were going to overthrow the empire, or they should have simply embraced them for the same reason they were going to overthrow the empire. But of course, nobody... Retrospective wisdom is always a little cheap. Uh-huh. Everybody can always have it. it. You know, it's a source of truth that will never run out, as George Eliot once said. You know, as we were setting this up, I said to you, I think a few days ago when we chatted, that uh, I want some of the, the old saws that everyone takes as wisdom and nods in the affirmative uh, for something having been so well put and thus clarifying something you knew in your bones. Uh, that's one of the what are you thinking of? Um, well, I'm thinking particularly of so so totally overquoted, and what did he really mean, and uh, where does it lead us? Uh, George Santayana, those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. Yes, it's so interesting. He, he was a really profound philosopher, who um, a really thoughtful person. I mean, some of his books, like the ones called Three Philosophical Poets, um, are really wonderful meditations of human wisdom. He would have been appalled to think that all that has survived of his once great reputation is one maxim. Do you think that really is all that has survived? You're probably right. Well, people who know, um, you know, know something about the history of American philosophy or know, you know, studied Santayana no more. Um, but I don't think he's ever taught, for example, in university classes. I don't think he's you know, on an everybody sort of must-read list, not even the way, you know, his contemporary, who really respected or disagreed with him, William James, um, was, uh, it still is. Um, let us come directly to politics or to history and the political world and so on, uh, where uh, famous quotations abound. I've got a whole sheaf of them in front of me. But which one would you draw out of your own memory as really reflecting some, some truth that uh, isn't readily and easily available? Well, being a Russian specialist, the first one that occurs to me is one which is really a paraphrase of, of Lenin, which is, um, when we are ready to hang the capitalists, they will sell us the rope. That is, they are so short-sighted yeah. about their own interests. Is that Lenin himself actually speaking? Well, it's actually somebody's paraphrase of what he stated in a whole paragraph. Uh-huh. So it's a correct rendition of his thought. He just didn't put it quite so aphoristically. Someone else did it for him. There's a similar line, you know, uh, Voltaire's famous line, I may not agree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it, is usually said, well, he never said that. And it's true, he never said that in so many words. But there are places where he has the thought, you know, in many more words, right? Um, Lenin also coins the phrase or the category of, uh, quote, useful idiots. Yes, and although that would have been a cliche in Russian radical thought by the time he said it, uh, you treat liberals and women, was the typical cliche, as useful idiots, people you can get to support you as if you believed in the same liberal values they did, um, appealing to their sense of nobility, and self-sacrifice, um, and then you use them because, in fact, you don't believe in anything remotely like what they Against mean. the Santayana old saw, those who 
forget history are condemned to repeat it, one thinks of that other great literary philosophical figure who also dabbled in uh, mechanics in a way, Henry Ford, who simply is quoted constantly as having said, history is bunk. Yes, I mean, that, that you certainly have two opposite views there. Uh, and although you could take Ford as simply being dumb, if you think about it, a lot of people have a worldview that history is bunk. For example, yeah. um, mathematicians do not study the history of mathematics. It's not helpful to them. Physicists don't study the history of physics. Those are just wrong ideas, you see. And if you want to take that view, and economists, perhaps mistakenly, very often, education economics for the last 40 years, at least, has included only minimal, if any, economic history. If you take that view, then, you know, that we have a hard science here, then indeed what's come previously is simply errors which have been overcome. And that, that's the view that underscores history as bunk, right? Um, and it's not, a, it's, it's not a dumb view. It's a view that only applies in certain circumstances when you actually have a hard science or, or something like mathematics. Among quotations about history, one that uh, I've run across many times, attributed to various people, and I've just found the oldest uh, uh, attribution, or at least the earliest, Namely, history is philosophy teaching by examples. I first ran across that in a quotations book from, uh, and it was attributed to some German metaphysician, maybe Lessing or somebody like that. Uh, but here, uh, it is, uh, here being just another quotations book or another quotations collection, uh, is uh, history is philosophy teaching by examples, Thucydides in the history of the Peloponnesian War. Yeah, it's a view that goes right back to antiquity. I mean, really, as you can find it. Thucydides have been the first to actually enunciate it that way? Yes, I think so. But you have to you know, realize what, why that would have to be an antique view because what it suggests is that history doesn't change from period to period. The same philosophical truths are illustrated over and over again. Either there's mob rule or stupidity or nobility, and these can happen at any time in any place. Whereas, you know, views of history, let's say since the Renaissance, have a concept of anachronism. Certain events, certain kinds of causation only exist in certain societies at certain times, and things develop. And so views like the Thucydides view, which suggests a timelessness, you know, appear itself like a period piece, you know, to us. People, you know, his, no historian would, would think of it quite that. That way, for better or worse, but that's been largely the case in the West since the discovery of the of anachronism. That is, that things cannot happen; things that happen at one time can't happen at another. Uh, in in the Renaissance, yeah. you uh, have already mentioned Voltaire. I ran into this one, which I never heard before, but uh, it has um, some wit to it. History is filled with the sound of silken slippers going downstairs and wooden shoes coming up. I never heard that one before. Who is that? That's Voltaire. I see. I or see so this there. collection asserts. Yeah, it's... The, mast, the Duke is going downstairs to the chambermaid. Right. Thus the silken slippers, and the wooden shoes are heard rising up when on another night she goes up to her master's chamber. 
Yes, but that's it's the also, meaning of it. I suppose that's one meaning, but you could also, I guess, interpret it as the silicon slippers are incapable of surviving in the long run, so they're going downstairs. But the hard wooden shoes of people who ah. have power and are not um, uh, overly refined and, and weak go upstairs, right? They, now, they what, do you, what do you find yourself what saying? What happens at a revolution? What do you find yourself saying when you're chatting with colleagues, friends, um, about history itself? Does any encapsulated wisdom push itself forward necessarily? Yes, it's what always strikes me is that people are quite sure of what the future will bring, and they're almost always wrong. Uh -huh. And so the idea of, I was going to say, how do you know? How you're looking at those people 50 years ago as stupid for not foreseeing the world as we see it. Like, um, oh, 50 years ago, it was a truism. You even get this from someone like John von Neumann, uh, that within 25 or 30 years, power will be too cheap to meter. It, energy will be free like the unmetered air. Th those are two common quotations at the time. And it seemed to be that because nuclear energy seemed to promise that at the time, right? Now it looks ridiculous to us. Well, what I want to say is, and what truisms that we think are just as certain about the future are going to be proven wrong? And the answer is almost all of them. Because you draw straight lines from the present, but there are things, lines are not straight, particularly because contingent events come from the outside that you haven't foreseen, and they always do. So modesty in anticipation, not betting the farm on one outcome, you're sure is certain. That's what you know, history teaches is wisdom, I think. You have in wars, and war is one of the major subjects of history, inevitably, you have as we go into this, the First World War, I suppose the quotation attributed to Woodrow Wilson that this is the war that will end all wars. Didn't turn out that way, did it? That's the point. Yeah. Um, and you know, you, there are certain statements that you simply know are false if you take a modest view ah. uh, immediately, like... Fukuyama's This is the End of History. Granted, interpreted in a Hegelian way, you know, not that no events will happen, but that no major new ideas will take place. But you know that that has never been true before. Why should it suddenly be true now? Because well, he, he had in mind the assertion that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, right. uh, the great conflict that had animated modern time was no longer there. The Cold War was over. But he went further than that. He went that there were, the point was that there will be no new major ideas that yes. will ever take place. Liberalism is the finest idea. Liberal is the final idea, liberal democracy. Now, at any point in history, you could find people saying that their beliefs represent the culmination of history. And they're always wrong. But it always seems that way that history tends to me that my time is a privileged time where wisdom has finally been revealed and it's been revealed in me and the people like me. You know in advance that when people think that way, they're going to be wrong. Winston Churchill, at some point when, when he is prime minister during the war, talks about the future as the, sun, the sunlit uplands towards which we are striving. Uh, that we enter the world of the sunlit uplands when the war is over and when Nazism is defeated. Well, I guess it would have to be up from what it was at the time he said it. That's yeah. what I mean, he was going to keep going up. 
I mean, uh, you can imagine that compared with what Europe was like under the Nazis, it was pretty likely that things, if you could beat them, would get better. Well, you're a Russian specialist in your own literary analytic work, and there's a vast amount of it. Uh, And the question is whether the Russians somehow have a, a kind of a mental fix or a characterological fix which makes them trouble seekers or makes them live with trouble in a sense more happily, that is more adaptively than Westerners do. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does, but it's not just that they, that happens to be true. It happens to be true, I think, because they believe it's true. This is part of their self-image. Russians speak of the Russian soul and... And uh, they say what of the Russian soul? Well, it's got... It's good at suffering and is good, better at finding meaning in suffering. It's good at enduring. It is not calculating, but just... You know, it, Russians are not rational. They don't save money. They don't look for the future. They don't calculate interest the way, this would be the cliche, Germans do. And if you, a, a Russian who did that would already not be a Russian. That's sort of the cliche that, that, that Russians think of themselves when they think of their character. It's written all over Russian literature and culture. Well, um, let's have a few quotations which exemplify that. Um, I'm hard, trying hard to think of... Yeah, well, it, here's one. In, in, in War and Peace, there's a scene where uh, aba- everyone's abandoning Moscow because the French are coming, mm-hmm. and the Rostovs have all their property loaded up on wagons to take out of the city, and some straggling soldiers come by, and the servants don't want to take their property off the wagons. It's all their wealth to take a couple of straggling soldiers. And Natasha, the heroine, says to her parents, are we a couple of, are we a group of Germans here? Okay, Russians don't do it that way, right? If to, to worry about your property, about preserving wealth is German. And of course you can see why that is, Russia has always been so poor a country with such a, hmm. with such a notion, right? But they think of it as incredibly, um, Humane. Also, I mean, Russians have this this idea that everyone has an idea that, well, sometimes it's good to engage in self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. give up your property or um, self-interest to do some good to others, as in this case, uh, in War and Peace. But Russians also have this notion that it's good simply to waste for no benefit whatsoever, simply to show you that we can do it, to have contempt for property, um, that waste for no ulterior motive is a good. Now, I think that, I don't know of any other culture that has that notion, but it is part of a Russian self-image. Chekhov writes a lot about it because he strongly disapproved about this aspect of the Russian character. Um, but if you think of a, the Brothers Karamazov, mm-hmm. Dmitri has this in him, and Dostoevsky clearly thinks it's a great idea. I mean, you know, this is, and Dostoevsky's, this sort of picture of Dmitri in Dostoevsky has become one of the texts that Russians use to define, define Russian. Yeah, you were saying, as you were talking earlier about this Russian fix on reality, I thought immediately of Dostoevsky. I wonder if he didn't sort of um, establish it and codify it in a way that had so much literary force that it became 
uh, more true by virtue of having been uttered by a man so influential. I really think so. I mean, if you modern, for example, Russian the Orthodox theology, um, I think is largely the, in most cases, the product of Dostoevsky. It is what they attributed to the Russian mm-hmm. tradition is really something they're getting out of Dostoevsky. And Dostoevsky attributed to the Russian tradition because he didn't want to say, well, it's just me. He actually read it back into the past. But when I read, you know, let's say anything before the 19th century, anything before the Slavophiles, um, I don't see the things Dostoevsky saw there. It seemed to me like it was necessary in the 19th century when nationalism was strong to create an alternative view of what Russianness was. Just the way the Germans were creating an alternative view of what Germanness was. And so the Russian idea of the very idea of creating an idea of Russianness is itself borrowed from the Germans, which is one of the, you know, the ironies of the time. Mm-hmm. And so Dostoevsky, you know, contrib- is the single most influential contributor to this. Um, Has something comparable happened on the other end of the world? I'm thinking of the United States of America, uh, and it's our own self-definition, and the writers maybe who. Uh, shifted that self-definition as we progressed further. Is Walt Whitman somehow crucial to shaping the American sense of oneself? Sure, I think it, I think he is. I mean, um, and Emerson and Thoreau—you know, this sense of um, energy, striving—you know—that that's that's so part of. Do any particular that. quotations come to mind in that realm? Um. I'm trying to think of the famous, I'm sorry, it's not coming to me, of Whitman um, looking and seeing, I see America. Um, what comes to me is, Walt Whitman am I, of mighty Manhattan, uh, a son. Yeah. I tramp a perpetual journey, and we're off. Yes, and it, or he says, uh, do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict yes, myself. Right. I am large, I contain multitudes. That is, America contains everything. It's not limited the way... You know, other, and that's the sense, the American sense of self as well. One of the people we love to quote, one of the significant writers who gets an awful lot of uh, re- appropriate deference uh, for wisdom and for doing it all with a light touch, which is all the more potent because it's disguised as humor, is, of course, Mark Twain. Yes. Uh, Mark Twain, you know, uh, is a, a wonderful example of what I think of as the humor, which I call the witlessism. The witlessism. Yeah, it, 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 I wrote a chapter to it in this book. It's um, people who have been famous for saying things that are intensely stupid. Um, you know, they can't just be stupid, they have to be brilliantly stupid. Um, and some of these witlessisms have a pr- pr- profound wisdom to it. Yogi Bear is the obvious modern example to it. You know, when you come to a Fork in the road, take, take it. it, right? And if you start thinking about it, there is really something, you know, to that. Um, Mark Twain sort of, but Yogi Berra did it without intending to. He was hapless. Yes, he hap- and yet there was wisdom in it. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I'm trying, the name is escaping me, but uh, the, one of the most famous ones, um, his name's Sir Boyle Roach, I'd have to... Th- name is escaping my mind right now, but in the, an English politician who was famous for these, who, one of which was, I don't see why we should worry about posterity. What has posterity ever done for us? Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, these, he was famous for these kind of mm-hmm. things. Um, and 
Yogi Berra, sort of, his don't have much wisdom to it, but Yogi mm-hmm. Berra's do. And then what Mark Twain, did someone, he created a character who was, you know, the, let's say the narrator of The Innocents Abroad, um, who would say these things like the way Yogi Berra did, only it was Mark Twain deliberately creating such a persona to create the witticisms that would also be performed. Would one of them be, everyone talks about the weather, but nobody does yeah, anything about a, it? That's an absolutely classic one, right? Um, or, you know, the um, that telegram he sent back, um, the reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated, yeah. right? You know, I, didn't, I, I think it isn't greatly. I think it's have, for so, have been somewhat exaggerated. No, I think it, it's 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 greatly because what it, well of course there's no these are all apocryphal so the version is whichever one you like best. Well, that um, must have been printed somewhere by Twain. It's, it was quote I believe it was sort of somebody quoted it, but nobody has the the exact source. Well, I, I remember no I, I I correct my memory now. There was an actual furor and concern. There was a report of his death, which was wrong. Right, that's the story. Yeah. Right. Ah. Right. Behind a lot of these things are stories that aren't in themselves, um, that, that, that change the origin of, uh, of the wisdom and give it somehow a different provenance. Well, th- think of famous last words. It, let's say- That's a g- wonderful category, yeah. You know, uh, there's a f- one attributed to General Custer. His last words supposedly are, we've got them surrounded. Now. Nobody survived that attack. Who could repeat the words in any case? Uh, how do you know? But nobody bothers to question. In fact, oh, you, know, no, you can't ask someone if they said it. So if somebody said something interesting two weeks before they died, in Oscar Wilde's case, it was actually a couple of months, uh, wouldn't you, and it would be more effective at the last moment, wouldn't you wind up quoting it as the last thing he said, particularly if it's a line like, either that wallpaper goes or I do, yeah. and then he goes? And if it was somewhat awkward and he was fumbling for words, wouldn't you sort of just quote it in the best possible way? But that's how all famous last words, you know, none can be authenticated, but you have to realize that they're offered as a kind of literary genre. You no more ask, did he really say that, than you ask when somebody tells a joke, did it really happen? What are some of the others that come quickly to mind? Well, uh, you know, there's a general in the Civil War um, who supposedly his last words are, they couldn't hit the broadside of a barn at that dist... <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, Pancho Villa, the, you know, the bandit, supposedly, um, his last words mm-hmm. were, tell them I said something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he knew that as a famous man, he had to say something. So, um, so write me a good line. Yeah, so you know, make one up for me, which uh, really actually catches the essence of it because that is what typically does happen. Yeah. Right? You know, um, Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas on Gertrude's death moment. You remember it? No, I don't. What's that one? She says, she's lying there about to die. She says, uh, that is, Gertrude okay, Stein, right. uh, what was the answer? And Alice's response is, Gertrude, I just don't know. And her last words are supposedly, then what was the question? question? Yeah. You believe it? Yeah, that's actually pretty good when you think of it, right? Um, you think it's true? I think it's true in the sense that 
before you can answer a question, you have to know what the question is. And to know what the question of life is would already be a significant discovery, yeah. right? Um, military uh, urgings or military commentary sometimes produces great moments and great lines. In whatever war it was, Frederick the Great says to his sort of worn-out soldiers or maybe his frightened soldiers, Schweinhund, was willen Sie? Immer zu leben? You dogs, uh, what do you want? To live forever? Yes, right. And that's sometimes quoted in military academies. Yes. Uh, at least I heard it in a lecture at the Naval War College many years ago. You know, if I were a soldier, it just wouldn't be very convincing to me. You know, wouldn't you think, well, I would like to live forever, but f falling short of that, a little while longer. You know, it does, about, you know uh, it, it's not, if the general says that, it, you know, he has an interest in, in, in making you think that way. How about this moment of uh, quiet but uh, pleasant contemplation? Again, Frederick the Great, standing at the window on a very, very uh, snowy winter's night, at the window of Sanssouci Palace, probably, says, they're making soldiers out there tonight. Oh, that's nice, yeah. You know, that Frederick the Great one, you, I guess you could contrast it with, you know, um, Admiral Nelson's one, you know. Um, he has two famous ones. Before the Battle of Trafalgar, um, England expects every man will do his duty. Now, that's not saying, just give up your life, you idiots. Do, do you want to die forever? It's saying there's a higher value here that you should be. Mm -hmm. um, keep in mind. And being English is part of, part of that, right? Um, you know, so that, that's, that's an appeal that, you know, that, that has something behind it, right? Um, mm -hmm. And a lo an awful lot of, you know, appeals in time of war, um, in some great national catastrophe, let us rise to the occasion. Um, something beyond ourselves. The fame, all the famous lines of you know Winston Churchill in, in World War II, you know, come. Or going back uh, to Lincoln and Gettysburg, surely. Lincoln and Gettysburg, yeah, which is, you know, so brief and yet the minute. you could take that as one long quotation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy enough to do because I'm. There was a time when I went to elementary school, you had to memorize that speech. Sure. It, it wasn't too long for an elementary school kid to, to memorize the whole thing, right? Um, which brings us to a, a yet another realm in which both you and I have had long interest and long involvement, namely education, uh, whether higher uh, or, quote, lower, um, and uh, wisdom about how you educate and what education is worth or how little it's worth, how much it's worth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Surely you've got professorial wisdom quotations in mind. Well... What is you know, education worth depends on what you think it's for. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, now we, th th this is in great debate, right? We, it's clearly what science education, we have some sense that it's about getting better things, which is really not what science is about. Um, but what's humanities education for? Uh, that's where the um, you know, the debate 
comes from. And that's why lines like the Santayana one you quoted, well, it's about remembering the past so that we don't make the same errors. Um, that kind of wisdom seems has become to seem a little old-fashioned, whether for, you know, for good or ill. And even the idea of Mm-hmm. Knowing history, the history as the philosophy past. teaching by examples yeah. is in the same category. It is. Um, or people, if you read Tolstoy or George Eliot, they will know something about human beings that you may not. And that is worth knowing about the meaningful life that is worth knowing. That's That would have been an idea which would have been Oh, common in education roughly from the late 19th century to the 1970s or so, 1980s maybe at the latest, uh, and now seems like as odd as French aristocratic dress of the 17th century to many people right now. Mm. But then that raises the question of why study the humanities at all? Um, and okay, that, I'll bite. Why study the humanities at all? Well, as you, you know, you can see from from the book of mine, you're, you're taking quotations from. I, I think it is a, a source book, of wisdom. I bet we made the title clear: "The Words of Others." Oh, like on the long, the aphorism book too. The, the, the long and the, short of it, right? The long and short it's of just, it. That's the book on aphorisms. Um, that's the one published by Stanford. The words of others, uh, from quotations. Culture, published by Yale University Press. Yes. Uh, I think of literature as the source of wisdom in how different minds thought. Uh, the art of the great novelist is to get you to feel and think along with a person very much not like yourself. And so the, you think along with Anna Karenina or Dorothea Brooke. You learn what it feels like to be inside another head mm-hmm. in a way that even in everyday life, it's, you can't do. You can't, and novels give you the inner thoughts of people as they occur. You can't, I can't do that with you at this moment, right? Um, so you get to live into another person of a, the opposite sex, of a different culture, a different occupation, a different time, a different civilization, and that's a kind of wisdom that gets you outside of the narrow confines of your, of the mm-hmm. island of self and the island of the present moment. And that's, you empathize with other points of view. Uh, certainly that's what George Eliot thought she was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's, you know, what I think literature and the humanities generally should do, but it's, you know... <laughs> Not what is generally done. Your mention of George Eliot somehow provokes in me uh, the related question: What what was uh, Jane Austen really about? What do you what does one get from Jane Austen? If you want to think of a an old established writer who's been who's in the realm of classical uh, literature, not classical uh, ancient world, but classical in that it's been around for a few centuries, uh, Jane Austen certainly fits. Uh, more for women than for men, for some reason. I think. Well, I guess I'm I'm with the women on this one because so I, I, I love right. Jane Austen. But um, but wh- where does she take us that we otherwise cannot uh, cannot or have not voyaged? Well, I'll, I'll give you what I think is, for me is what stands out mm-hmm. as her re- most remarkable um, 
lesson. She, all of her novels are about how someone starts out thinking in one way. Sometimes she gets the reader to think that way too. Mm-hmm. And then bit by bit realizes that they have left something out. If you think of, you know, um, Pride and Prejudice, that's what the two views of Mr. Darcy, which you know, yeah. heroin shares and you share also, um, you realize that you have made a mistake and how that process happens, how you see that what you thought was simply based on the evidence was based on vanity in part, on your pride and prejudice, on misperceptions, on self-deception, and you come to take a broader view. Well, that's, of course, what literature is supposed to do, take you through that process itself, and that's what she does you know, with her heroines over and over again. And it's something that you know, marks her heroines out as particularly why, because most people never admit they're wrong. No matter what happens, you can find a way. Uh, uh, you make a prediction and it comes out to be dead wrong. Well, but it was almost right. Or the other side was right, but for the wrong reason. You can always explain it away. There's no set of evidence that, that can't be explained away. And that's what most of us do. No, no events ever prove us wrong <laughs> about another person if we don't want to be proven wrong, if we're not willing to be. But her... Jane Austen's heroines are, and that's their, their greatest source of appeal and wisdom. They are willing to be proven wrong. There was a, 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 f- a fellow some years ago who lived alternate lives, fake lives, but uh, he played different roles in life, mm-hmm. and ultimately he wrote it up, uh, or somebody rather did, did a book about him when one of these capers of his landed him in prison. What he did was just take on a new professional role, and he knew how to fake it and fake the, author, the authentication so that he could become a Catholic parish priest or, or, or a deacon or something uh, in a particular church. Or he could become a surgeon in the Royal Canadian Navy, which he? he did. His name was Frederick Demera, if I remember correctly. Or he could become uh, a stockbroker and uh, pull that off for a while. And for him, the great pleasure was in being a different person every time until... Finally, it got him into trouble with the law, and he winds up in prison at some point for, uh, for some sort of uh, legitimate reason. Then somebody writes a full book about him, which was a bestseller for a while. Uh, and this fellow appears one night on the Jack Parr show. Uh, Ford remembers Jack Parr. Yes, the talk show, the one that originated all the ones that we've had since, late night talk shows. Was uh, from the pretty, much so. he was doing. pretty much so. Pretty much so. And... Uh, Parr was always rather excited, and we get a little bit overwhelmed by the deep interest with which he carried forward to the next issue. And he has such a moment of Parian excitement. We say, I don't understand. How could, how could you do it? How could you get so many people to believe things about you that just aren't true, even when you don't have any credentials that you can show? But you were this, you were that, you were the other. They all believed you. What's the secret? How do you persuade people of, the, of, of truths that aren't true? And the, this fellow, who's still, who's still playing uh, with great wisdom of a sort, uh, or uh, with self-amusement, I'm sure, uh, turns to Parr and says, you know, that's really the greatest question I've ever been asked. And I've never talked about this, but I'm going to do it now, which is a good setup. Yeah. Parr says, yes, yes, yes. The great revelation is about to come. He says, well, 
what I always knew and what always was true is that you win a person's confidence by getting into an argument with them. And the argument goes on and you hold your position strongly and fiercely. But sooner or later, there comes a moment, it could be hours after the argument began, when you lean backwards and you say nothing and you think and think. And then finally, you say, you know, you are right. You know, I was absolutely wrong. I was wrong. You were right. And you've lifted the scales from my eyes. I'm improvising the wording, but it was that sort of thing. Yield uh, to another for having been completely right and you completely wrong when you disagreed. And then you've got, you've got them in the palm of your hand. But why would, does that work? It works so, Do you think it's a good observation? Yeah, I, it probably is. I mean, uh, but it would work. Take the next step. Why does it work? It works because that never happens. And so it's such a surprise when it does that you win the person's confidence. If, this, if, peop, if you could change people's mind by arguing at them relatively frequently, it wouldn't work. To, you well, you get and the confidence. You and I have both been in, the, in a business in which you say things and then people argue with you. That is, you write an essay, yes. you write a book, it gets reviewed, uh, or, at, or at somebody's cocktail party, somebody starts an argument with you and tells you, you know, your last article, I'm sorry, I gotta tell you, it was totally wrong and here's why. And these disagreements about one's worth do occur in the so-called academic life, as they do in many other yes. realms as well. Have you ever tried? Have you ever found yourself convinced by the critical opponent that uh, you did something or did some large undertaking of yours was foolish, was incorrect, was ill-founded, and said and made that confession directly to the accuser? Well, I never had it quite the entire whole argument, but when my first book came out, it was um, it got a mixed review from the great Dostoevsky scholar Joseph Frank, uh-huh. um, who um, claimed that I was I had taken a relativist position. Mm-hmm. And I wrote to him, and I said, but no, no, I didn't. You see, don't you see that in this passage, in this passage, I qualify it? And he said, yes, he says, you qualify it, but you don't believe your qualifications. Uh-huh. You're doing that, you know, as sort of armor in case anybody objects. But in fact, the whole burden of your argument, and I, you know, he was right. Mm-hmm. And I became sensitive at that point to the kind of self-deception I had, because I was unconsciously doing it that way. Um, but I... Ever since then, I've been very careful to, to think whether, you know, I am but, but, but did taking you, a position that I don't really believe in because I somehow want to take it. But did you publicly avow that in response to his critique? In a later book, I did, yeah. You did. In a later book, I did, yeah, on, on a similar topic, yeah. I mean, I didn't go on the street corner, but I, it's in a footnote. That's great. Um, uh, we're coming towards the end of the available time. Uh, your basic interest in these special books, the two I've mentioned— uh, the long and the short of it, and uh, the words of others. Your special interest has been in um, wisdom sayings, mm-hmm. whether you call them proverbs or maxims or aphorisms or what have you. Uh, what two or three available to common mankind have really had its lasting influence upon you or seem, seem more than worthily deeply true? 
Well, that's that's a really to pick two or three. Um, I really love the first sentence of Anna Karenina. Um, as about happy families. All happy families resemble each other. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, which is a, actually a very gnomic expression. It's not yes. clear what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're reading Tolstoy, you realize that in his notebooks and in War and Peace, he has a similar French proverb quoted, which goes, happy people have no history. Hmm. Is Where there are events... There is unhappiness. We used to think of, you're used to think of life as good when it's dramatic, but that's when it's bad. A good life is one in which there are no particular incidents because the ordinary day-to-day life, which is what really matters, Hmm. is good. Happy families all resemble each other because there's no story to tell about them. But unhappy families are each unhappy in their own way because they each have a story and every story is different. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, so it, it expresses, it, it, you know, there's supposedly a, a curse that goes, may you live in interesting times. It's that kind of thought that is where there are events, something is wrong. And But the same is true in your life. If you tell your life story as... <laughs> one dramatic event to the other. You, that illness, my wedding, the, the big events that figure in history, you haven't understood your life, mm-hmm. Tolstoy's point. The real most important moments of your life are ones that you may not remember at all. Excellent. Um, Excellent. One more. Well, there's one I, I really like of um, La Rochefoucauld. Uh-huh. You know, if I can remember this one correctly, um, everyone um, everyone questions his memory, but nobody questions his judgment. Mm-hmm. That is, you are willing to admit, if you make a mistake, you're willing to say, oh, I just forgot. But you're not willing to say, the way I think is wrong. Because... In that case, you'd actually have to admit there was something about yourself which is wrong, right? Um, And you don't want to do that. The most important thing for La Rochefoucauld about how we think about life, everything that we do is about our vanity, our amour propre, love of self, as he calls it. Um, Self-love. And another one of his great lines I love is, self-love is smarter than the smartest man in the world. Hmm. And it's, no matter how much you think you convince yourself you're thinking of something because it's true, no matter how much you think you've escaped your self-love to get what's really going on, it's another snare set by self-love to get you to think that way. Both of those are congruent with the single one of uh, uh, La Rochefoucauld's maxims. Uh, which is most widely quoted, at least in France, I think. Therefore, I should say it first in French. Dans l'adversité de nos meilleurs amis, nous trouvons quelque chose qui ne nous déplaît pas. In the misfortunes of our friends, there is something that is not totally displeasing. Yes, that, that's a wonderful line, right? Uh, there's something not... In t- the, the, the genius of that line is that, you know, you could have done it as... 
There's something we like in the misfortunes of our friends, but he does it as negatives upon negatives yeah. upon negatives. And very well, he could have done it even more crudely, as Gore Vidal did. Yeah. Uh, it is not enough that I succeed. My friends must fail. Yes. But you see, that would be... It's equally crude. That, that would be the thought, but it wouldn't capture, as yeah. La Rochefoucauld's does, the complicated turns and turns and turns by which we persuade ourselves that this isn't so, that we really do care about the misfortunes of our friends and don't want to admit that we ran. He gets the, mm. you know, the ways in which, in, in his tangled syntax there, the way we tangle our thoughts. And another great common source of pleasure is to encounter wisdom and to talk about it. And, and ultimately to ask, is it true wisdom or is it a, a falsification of something uh, that we ought to understand better? And uh, that's part of the delight. There's much other delight uh, in the two books by uh, Gary Morrison. Uh, there are many other books, most of them dealing with Russian literature and Russian culture and so on. But the two books we've been drawing from, if only loosely, in this conversation are, one, The Long and Short of It, as published by Stanford, and to the words of others, as published by Yale. And I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Milt. I love being here.